Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I am Joe Rocky, here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, our last two conversations were about what is it like entering the seminary coming from the perspective of someone who's thinking about if I became a priest, what would that be like? You know, we have had this experience. We went through high school, kind of got the feel for that. Along the line, people gave lots of implying of what college would be like. As all of us who went through it, we found that some of that was accurate. Much more of it was not. Um, and, and the much of the last two episodes were to try to give us accurate spotlight on what the seminary life is like. And since that last recording, I've come up with uh, some other questions I want to ask you in addition. Um, I'm sure some of this starts from the starting point. I just, having not gone through seminary, am not aware of it. And I come from the business background. And one of the things that I have found a lot in virtually every industry is that there's some problem you get when you get over specified or specialized in a particular field. Some of my crews are just like the best roofing companies of all time. And they can put down the greatest roof ever. No leaks. It'll last forever. Exactly what you want. But they have a hard time finding work because they don't know how to do some of the other basic things a business requires, like finding new jobs, being able to keep your payroll going so your crews always want to be there and stuff like that. And I bring this up because that's one of the jobs of a priest is running a parish. And this could be my tilted view, but in a certain sense, it's there's some elements of running a business in there. You have a staff of some sort. You have to make sure that the bills get paid so that, you know, you don't get evicted by your landlord. Not to say there are landlords in this case, but core concept that the electric company gets paid and all that stuff. And I basically wanted to see if there, if what that kind of thing is, is as far as the training that goes on with priest. Because the other thing that I found is that people who get really good at one task only really want to do that task and blow off everything else. So as far as as the discussions we've had so far are about how to become more holy, more giving of yourself to be as Christ was, which is the ultimate goal of the priest, and I'm by no means trying to diminish that. What I'm saying is that the more specialized you get, sometimes you can't be good at something else. For instance, like Major League Baseball, they all come up learning how all the pitchers know how to hit, but magically when they're in the actual pros, they have no idea how to hit anymore because they have spent all of their time just perfecting their pitches and they can't bat. (laughs) So I wanted to have this conversation here about kind of the other, other areas of life as, as we are addressing what it's like going through seminary and becoming a, a priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for uh, continuing this topic. I think it's probably fascinating for a lot of people because it's just not uh, very well known. People know they're priests, but they don't have any idea what the background was. And and to be fair, you know, that's changed a bit. It's changed a lot over the past 2000 years. Uh, there was a major shift at the time of the Council of Trent in the 16th century. You see, this is how Catholics think in centuries. So, 
but there's been big shifts in the last hundred years as well, and and even in the last fifty years, there have been shifts in in how seminary formation takes place. Um, when thinking about a, a priest, so there is a job analogy to it. You know that it's a job. On the other hand, we can look at it; it's a a state of life, and so in that sense, it's more comparable to marriage. And you might say, like. How do married couples get qualified to run a household? I mean, isn't a household like a business? You know, when you have two people and you have a budget, don't you have a business, right? I mean, it's like, um, does anybody get any training in that? And and we do try to fold those things into some marriage prep and, you know, handling finances. Finances can be a big stress on a marriage. So even at that level, uh, you know, we, we do that kind of training. W- w- did we always have that in marriage prep? Well, if we didn't, it's because people had families they grew up in and families they had access to. And so you learn from your dad how to how to manage a household or you learn from your father-in-law or you consulted somebody when you, you know, we had organic ways to learn that stuff. We didn't have to learn it in classes from teachers. And one of the things that your question is, expressing is how our society has shifted, that we are learning more things in classrooms from teachers that we used to learn in families. So the priest analogy, to take it back to our subject, is that, uh, you know, a new priest, like a new husband, should be learning from his father, which would be like his, uh, his, his priest mentor, how to do some of these things. And in fact, that's all seminary consisted of before the Council of Trent. We didn't even have classrooms and seminaries. Priests just learned from other priests how to be priests. And so there's still an expectation that a lot of that is happening. No priest becomes a pastor immediately after he's ordained. And so some of the answer to your question is, well, when you become a pastor, you go to pastor school because the comment that you made, one of the priest's jobs is he has to run a parish. Well, I most likely will go through my whole life as a priest, never running a parish. So it's not actually what a priest does. <laughs> it's what some priests do, and it's what most diocesan priests do. It's a fine comment. But just to put that in perspective, there has to be more to seminary than that. But you're exactly right. We need to provide for that in some way. And seminary would be a way to make sure that nobody slips through the cracks there. The downside is that if I ever run a parish, it's going to be, I'm already ordained 14 years. You know, I don't remember a thing about what I learned in seminary in my parish administration class. I'm going to need to relearn that anyway, if I'm ever going into a parish. So simply depending on classes to do that kind of thing is not necessarily the best solution. Having said all that, we do have classes in seminary on administration, on the dimensions of of budgets, hiring and firing, of man, of handling volunteers, uh, some management things. I do a formation class on uh, strengths finders and uh, identifying talents, identifying different uh, approaches to ministry, identifying talent in your parish and leadership models, collaboration, servant leadership. Um, you know, we do have a parish practicum class. So when it someone's a deacon, he'll go to the same parish and he'll work with a, a priest mentor every weekend and then for a couple of two-week stints. And that mentor's job is 
you know, introduce him to the finance councils, help him to see what the employees look like, help him to see the budget of the parish, help him to see liturgical planning, help him to understand uh, other forms of pastoral ministry that a parish can do, um, pastoral council, liturgical committee, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So even while they're still in seminary, they're getting that. Some priests usually have a summer assignment. In some cases, they have a pastoral year. Again, they're in the in the, in the place that they're getting exposed to a lot of those details. Hey, look, sit down. I'm going to sign the checks. You know, so you're going to watch a pastor go through some of these things, and and then also have a chance to deal with some of those questions. People are going to get mentored better and worse. Classes are going to be better and worse, more and less full. You know, there's always that kind of variability, but. Um, those are some of the places that we expose people to the business aspects, which are real. You're exactly right. And I think it's a place that the church is still, it's, it's an interesting uh, position to be in because ultimately the church has responsibility. You know, when you write a check to a parish, at some level, you want the pastor to take responsibility for that check coming in and for the money going out. You want the official representative of the church, the clergy member, the pastor, to have responsibility. You want him to be signing checks and and having a personal hand in it. Even having had some of that training, I mean, he's not an MBA. He's not a financial accountant, you know, or whatever you call those guys. You know, know, he doesn't have that level of professional competence, usually, and you wouldn't necessarily expect him to. So, it is actually necessary for a parish to have a finance council. That's in canon law. Every parish must have a finance council. And there are some requirements for the involvement of the finance council in some of the decision-making. And I don't know those details offhand. If I were a pastor, I would have to know those details. And I would learn them before I did that. But, um, but at the same time, you know, the, the pastor learning how to work with the business manager, learning how to work with the finance council, learning how to consult with the diocese is also going to have some professionals who are trusted that he can ask questions to. Uh, that's just that realm. That would be similar with some aspects. You know, a, a pastor needs to be able to do marriage prep. So he needs to know quite a bit about marriage and family and uh, and and a bit about like psychology and family systems things, you know, he's going to learn some of that stuff on the fly. And he also needs to know some of it going in. Again, there's going to be usually some offices in the diocese, some uh, specialists there that he can consult with. Wow. I have this difficult case. You know, can you give me some insight? Is there someone I can refer to? He needs to have access to that. Um, he needs to have some medical knowledge, you know, and we do some bioethical things, but in order to do bioethics and understand the moral theology involved in, um, is it acceptable if somebody wants to refuse chemotherapy? Is that morally acceptable in our Catholic faith? It's a good question. Is it morally acceptable to do embryo adoption? You might not even know what that is, but I do. Uh, you know, is it acceptable to use uh, this experimental medical procedure in this particular case? Is it acceptable to you end up like getting a lot of medical knowledge? I mean, priests need to have some knowledge. Now, a hospital chaplain needs to have more knowledge 
than a pastor does, you know, and sometimes a seminary professor needs to have more knowledge than a, you know, so there's some areas that there's room to specialize. And then our, our communication network among the, among the clergy, but then branching out. I mean, I meet with a couple of doctors, uh, you know, I, I have friends all over the place and I, you know, business coaches and uh, CEOs and whatever. I have lots of people I, I know and can consult with. And then I can refer to my friends too, if people ask me. And so, so you have to really build up those resources um, and, and learn a lot of those things as you, as you go along. Uh, seminary provides a lot of starting points and we do, you know, it's a hundred and uh, like 125 credits or something in seminary. I mean, it's a lot of, that's a, uh, that's a lot. It's whatever, eight, uh, two year, you know, eight, nine, 10 semesters of, of, uh, of classes. So, um, we, we do get quite a bit of stuff. So it's, it's not as specialized as you might think. And some would complain, gosh, you know, didn't you study like the book of Chronicles? I mean, you spent all that time in seminary. You don't even know the book of Chronicles in the Bible. Like, yeah, man, there's a lot of stuff to study in seminary. There's a lot going on in the priesthood. So um, there's always more to learn. And that's why ongoing formation is also really critical component to, to all of this as well. Well, that that makes sense. So you got to have some form of, of round the knowledge training, keep it going. That absolutely makes sense. You know, no one has figured everything out the day they leave college. I think that anyone looks back at how they were 10 years ago and it's different than, than it is now. So the ongoing training is significant. One of my other questions I had, this might be a misperception I had about how things were in looking up some things in the past, but it seems like in, in before I was alive, I guess, I don't know exactly when you're going to know the, the history of this, assuming this is even an accurate thought that, well, yes, priests obviously were priests. They, they had all those answers as you were discussing there. They had to know the background of the faith and what is morally okay to be able to say, is this bioethical question, what would the answer be? So it's not that they necessarily had to memorize all this stuff. Well, certainly there's a component that they did. It was more of this is how the answer gets solved. And this is the building blocks or the, the test. So I'm not a priest, but I'm assuming somewhere in there's you got to make sure that you had the respect for life first and foremost. And then there's probably other ways to discern how you're doing that. And when there's situations of, you know, if the mother or the baby's going to die, who do you save and why? And it's probably a case by case thing. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But where I was getting to with the question was in the past, it seems that there were people who were priest and another type of profession, like a priest or some type of lawyer, or um, some type of secular position, maybe a, a mayor or something like that, a doctor, like when there were um, the Catholic-run hospitals and whatnot. Um, is, is there any thought of having that to, I don't want to say necessarily increase the voice, 
But if you ended up being, have a priest say that he was the preeminent law professor of, I don't know, contracts or something, and that every person wanted to learn how to do contracts, it was his voice that was imprinted upon the system. You know, there are presumably more ethical contracts than not by having this professional in charge being the preeminent voice on that. Is there any um, cross-training in that type of thing, or is that something that's no longer a, a design or a goal, or was it even ever a goal of the church in, in the way that, that she uses her priests? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Um, so there was a time, you know, the university system was developed by the Catholic church. Uh, the university of Paris being one of the first universities and all every, every professor was a priest in the university of Paris and, and the whole university is the university of Bologna, the, all of these places that started in like the 12th, 13th century. Uh, they were all run by the church. In fact, the graduation robes are actually monastic choir robes. So that we still use, you know, that's where that comes from. And, and so, uh, because really the most educated people were the clergy. I mean, uh, you know, monks and priests were, were the educated elite and then they educated the royalty. Uh, so some of the royalty who were educated were all educated by monks and priests. I mean, that's, that's the Western world, you know, I'm talking about Europe and, uh, that would didn't really come over. There was a public education anyway, uh, getting into the U S it starts to look a little bit different, but, um, everything was very Protestant in the U S. And so you still had this kind of very religious element to it. And then the Catholic church developed a kind of parallel system in terms of education. But yeah, so our college, for example, was run entirely by our monks and who are all who are all priests at that time. I think in 1950 like every one of our employees in the college was a priest except one secretary was a lay person. The professors and we had uh, you know, biology, physics, chemistry, business, uh, English, history, everything. Everybody was a priest and they all had doctorates and they all ran those departments and they all educated people. And, and it's still the case to a certain extent. I mean, it's, not, you know, I have a doctorate in computer science and there are a couple other monks with doctorates in biology. One of them specialized in genetics. The other one specialized in uh, neurochemistry of addiction. Um, another guy has just finished his doctorate in physics down at the university of North Carolina, doing some things with, uh, MRIs, uh, nuclear medicine, um, we have uh, another a monk who's has a who has a well, he's a master's in computer science and teaches there. We have people in history, in uh, anyway, variety of uh, in English, variety of different subjects who who all have doctorates. Um, I also know some priests. I know a priest who's a medical doctor down in Haiti and runs a hospital in Haiti and does a beautiful work for the really poor people. I mean, just offers everything really free of charge. Mother Teresa actually got her nursing education 
Um, when she decided, when she discerned the call to go out into the streets and minister to the poorest of the poor, she realized that she needed to get a professional education in that. And so she got a nursing education. I know another sister, now I'm wandering a little bit from priests, but I know another sister in Steubenville who has three master's degrees, uh, but one in psychology and then one specialized in trauma therapy. And then she's building a center for addiction treatment using trauma therapy. And, uh, and then she also has a master's in theology. Um, you know, so yeah, we have, we have uh, clergy and religious who, who get um, specialized degrees. Sometimes they already have the specialization. We have a monk in the monastery who was actually a Hollywood lawyer, represented Cher, for example, uh, among other famous people, and, uh, and then discerned a call into the monastery. Now he carries that uh, law degree into the monastery, of course. Uh, I know another woman who was um, a, an emergency NICU nurse uh, who then joined a, a Byzantine convent, you know, and she's still got those credentials, that training. She keeps up her certification. And so I know another, now this is coming back to your point. There's a, another priest, Father Tad, who is, uh, has a doctorate. He's, he's actually an MD and a PhD in neuroscience, something like that. And, uh, he works for the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia, and he answers a lot of these questions. He does a lot with stem cell um, moral theology questions, and so there's there's some specialization there. Um, yeah. So anyway, there's yeah there's certainly there's certainly quite a bit of, of specialization. We're we're not trying to take anything over or. Uh, whatever. I mean, but we bring a unique perspective to those areas. And then having specialists in those areas who are also devout Catholics and, and understand really the, the area itself and, and have an understanding of spirituality, theology is a wonderful combination. And so those, it's a, it's a wonderful resource to provide so that we're not just throwing stones from our ivory towers that are disconnected with the world because we live in our little theology bubbles and don't actually understand anything about anything else. I mean, science was developed by the Catholic church. You know, the first Academy of the sciences was the Academy of the Lynxes, which was founded by the Vatican and paid for by the Vatican and, and, and list in, was in Italy. Galileo was one of its first prominent members. So anyway, the, these kinds of things are sometimes get lost in our minds and in our imaginations and in historical imagination. But, but the church has always had a great stock in that. And, uh, and so anyway, yeah. That makes sense. And, and again, the reason I, I bring that up is whenever we were discussing in our prior series about, you know, work and what's the relation of the employer and, and jobs and all that, you guys have way more training on ethics and what's the right thing to do than I ever will. You know, I, I'm trying to do the right thing, trying to learn that. And it just would seem that, and I'm not saying the entire field of, you know, trial lawyers or family law or whatever ends up being run by priests, but to have an example to say, Hey, you know, this is where it goes. So it just, just was a thought because, 
know, historically speaking, um, there's a lot less problems in terms of hurting people whenever the church is involved than when not. You know, obviously there's bumps in the roads everywhere and not trying to diminish anything, but there's a pretty reasonable expectation that these great examples people use of capitalism gone wrong, um, you know, for here you think of how Frick ran the steel mills or something, that if a priest were involved in the upper circle, it probably would not have gone the way that it did. And I get that part of that is, you know, the lay's responsibility to learn better. But also on the same hand, if there's a priest involved in the conversation, it can tend to have a lot more gravity and have a lot more impact behind the words. So that's why I was asking about trainings like that. Just to, uh, which I totally agree with, and, and just to expand the vision a little bit for, for, for as food for thought, one of the positions that a priest cannot take by canon law is a political office. So if I were to be elected congressman, I would have to uh, no longer be a priest, essentially. I mean, I'm a priest forever, but I would, I would lose my faculties to exercise priesthood. Uh, by canon law, I can't be a member of, uh, of civil authority like that. And it's an interesting, it's a position the church takes because you're so right about having a priest involved in a meaningful way. A meaningful way sometimes means not being part of the system so that we can always stand a little bit apart from it to be a prophetic voice, a detached prophetic voice, to not potentially get sucked into the corruption. You know, if if there were a priest in the upper echelons, he might have suffered from the same problems, right? Even being apart from it, he might still suffer from those problems. But trying to keep some of those things separate, sort of like, uh, you know, protecting against conflicts of interest. You don't have your own auditor in your own company doing your own audits, right? You have an ex- an outside agency audit your books. You have an internal auditor to make sure you're doing the right thing, but you need an external auditor so that it's trustworthy. And that's where the priesthood also wants to intentionally stand apart at times in order to be that better external auditor. And that's where we work well with good Catholics. If there's a CEO who's a faithful Catholic and he admits his ignorance, I don't know social ethics, but you do, Father. Let's be friends. I want to learn this from you. Challenge me. Speak to how I can handle my company better, more ethically, more in line with God's law, with God's design. And that's the fruitful uh, mutual relationship. I need you to support my church, to give me business guidance, to, to give me some insight on my company, leadership maybe. You need me also to provide a prophetic challenge and insight into how you're managing people and, and doing your business. So that can be a really fruitful um, communication, fruitful friendship if you if you work it right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And clearly you have figured out how to do this very well. I mean um... – being where you're at as far as where your position is in your monastery, but also just throughout life, you can tell that you have figured it out. And it does go back to one of the things he said in the last episode that priests have one of the highest job satisfactions, as you clarified in this episode, that it's more than just a job. It's a lifestyle 
it's it's an everything you don't wake up and only become a priest at nine o'clock and turn it off at five you're you're always going to be a priest right which is why holy orders is different than getting a promotion um so Amen. you know i get that and um and i i definitely thank you for articulating this because as we move forward here you know one of the goals is to bring people closer to the church and we never know where any of those individuals are. Some of them may be pondering the priesthood. And certainly there's a lot of mystification out there about it. And I think every time having a conversation that removes some of the clouds of what's going on will only help. So with that being said, as we're concluding today's episode, it was a little bit different than the first two about the seminary. But if you have any additional thoughts you want to make sure we bring in in this particular forum. Uh, well, I guess I would also ask people to pray for their priests. And uh, I, I hope one thing that comes out, thanks to you asking these questions, is there is a really uh, substantial, broad, holistic formation, not just education, but formation, not just facts, but really forming persons that happens in the seminary. And we take it really seriously. It's a big investment, but it's a tremendous benefit. I mean, I think priests that really engage that, and we try to make sure they do. I mean, it's hard to just skate your way through seminary. You get a lot of evaluations in seminary <laughs> and a lot of evaluators and a lot of people looking. You know, it's really high stakes uh, putting somebody out in the priesthood these days, and we take that really seriously. So I hope our listeners get a sense of how serious that is and how, how hard we try at that and what the expectations are. I also hope that our listeners get a sense of well, there's a lot involved in priesthood, you know, and it's easy to throw stones and and see the problems from, you know, him being a bad homilist to a bad manager to uh, being insensitive uh, in a particular interaction or anyway. I mean, there are real problems and there are priests that kind of go downhill and they don't keep up. And anyway, we could spend a whole other episode on that, but uh, in the past, people have maybe been overly generous with their priests, <laughs> maybe given them too much of the benefit of the doubt. But now it seems like there's there can be an overly critical uh, stance. And so I guess I would just hope people would see, you know, it's, there's a lot. And it's a lot for one person. And we have a lot to learn still as priests. And if you can be helpful, finding ways to make suggestions, make friendships with priests, uh, you know, talk with them. If you have expertise, offer it. We need it. Sometimes we don't even know how much we need it. <laughs> and and uh, at least the humble ones will accept it. Some priests might be too proud or might need to trust you more to, to get that. But um, I think we, we really need it. And there's a lot involved. So really encourage people to, to offer that expertise. Um, and then, like I said, you know, if you see some deficiencies, don't be surprised. Uh, either offer some solutions or at least pray. Pray for us. Um, the prayer really makes a big difference. It's amazing how much God can make up for in, uh, in our own deficiencies. So anyway, I appreciate being able to talk about these things. Yeah, and on that note, that was one of the things that until I called you up to start this cast, I didn't even know that I could do. <laughs> really, <laughs> it is, 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 as you said, offer solutions, be there to to help in a different capacity more so than just 
putting up a Christmas tree or something like that to actually do something that that's a little bit outside of the beaten path. So I, again, I thank you for that father. And I thank everyone out there for listening. Please continue to help us show and grow the cast, you know, tell friends about it. That's really how we're growing first and foremost. So thank you everyone who has done that. And we thank you for being with us and we'll be with you again here next week.